Welcome to this podcast by City Point Church, Redcliffe. We are so happy you could join us and pray that the following message will encourage and empower you. Well, here we are, October, and um, we've done Relationship Month in October, and we called it Love Is, and we talked about... um, Love is, what is love according to a biblical framework, according to a biblical worldview? What does God say love is? Anyone else think that's a really, really good starting point? Like, what does God say? Because we shouldn't be borrowing concepts from the world, like it's messed up out there. And when it comes to love, probably not the frame of reference we should be using. So we've been asking, what is love according to Scripture, according to God? And we've covered the four types of love. We've got the four um, Greek words. We've got eros love, which is that romantic kind of love, which um, we get our word erotic from. And that's the one that the Scripture talks about. We shouldn't awaken too early. That's the one that we use when we're married. I reckon half of the world's problems would be solved if we just figured that out. Right? Then we have um, um, agape love, which is unconditional love, and it's the love of God. The perfect example of God towards us. And Cam preached an amazing message on that. It's all on the podcast. I encourage you to go back, have a listen to that. Unconditional love. Storge love, which um, we covered actually in our parenting pop-up group. Storge love is the love that you experience in family between a mother and a child, a father and a child, sisters, brothers. It's that family love. That's the storge love. And tonight I'm going to talk about philia. And philia love is the love between friends. So turn to the person next to you and say, I philia you. Right? So (laughs) it's probably not the context or the way you should use that word, but... Filial love is the love shared between friends. It's the love that we experience in community. It's the love that we experience in church. Um, Between the people we do life with is filial love. And so I want to talk on the topic of friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And so we live in this consumerist culture where everyone's asking, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? And it actually makes it really hard for friendship. It actually makes it really hard to be a good friend when your compass is self. And so I want to talk today about friendship because friendship is something that we all crave, but very few of us do really, really well. We all want good friends but we don't always manage our friendships in a way that allow us to have good friendships. So I wanna talk about that today. C.S. Lewis, who knows who C.S. Lewis is? One of my favorite authors. And um, I try to read at least one of his books a year and he's so smart that I probably couldn't do much more than one a year. Um, But one of his books, he wrote the Narnia series, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he's written so many books, and um, one of them is called The Four Loves, and he writes about these four loves. And the way that he talks about friendship is quite amazing. He says that friendship is actually the superior of all the loves. He says because it proves our intellect, that the other loves are all primal instincts. 
So eros love is an instinct. God gave us an instinct so we could procreate. But it's an instinctual kind of love. Storge love is an instinctual love. It's something that's out of obligation that we have towards each other in family. But friendship, filia love, is a luxury and it's a choice. You don't need friends to survive. You need your parents to survive. You need eros love to procreate. It's an instinct. But you don't need filia love. You don't need a friend to survive. We choose to have friends, and he says it proves then that we are intellectual beings, that we can operate beyond primal instinct. And he calls it a luxury because we choose it. We don't need it. We choose it. And so because of all of that, he says it's the superior of all the loves. It's not necessary for our survival. And so I want to just say right from the beginning, you don't find friends. You make friends. Okay, don't walk into church looking for friends, okay? Unfortunately, we don't hide them under the seats. You're not going to walk into church and trip over someone and go, oh, I found a friend. You make friends. If you trip over someone, you may just then need to make them a friend. We make friends. We don't find friends. And so I want to have a look tonight at what it is to be a kingdom-minded friend. So I'm not asking tonight, what are my friends doing for me? I'm not asking, do I have good friends? I'm asking, am I a good friend? I'm asking, am I the type of friend that resembles the kingdom of heaven? How do I become a kingdom-minded friend? As followers of Jesus, we should be the best types of friend. We should be that. And so... Depending on time, depending on how much fun we have, we'll get through three or four, all right? Three or four ideas of what it is to be a kingdom-minded friend. And the first one comes out of the Old Testament in the story of Ruth and Naomi. And the first point is to be a kingdom-minded friend, you recognize your authority, your position, your unique role to prophesy over your friends. To be a kingdom-minded friend, you prophesy over your friends. So just to give you a bit of, you know, bring us up to speed, Ruth and Naomi were these two women living outside of God's um, homeland, where his people lived. But Naomi, the mother-in-law, was one of God's people. She was a part of God's family who had moved away. Ruth was her daughter-in-law. So we have Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, okay? When Naomi, uh, Naomi had two sons, she was a widow who had two sons. Her two sons grew up and got married. One son married Ruth, another son married another woman named Orpah. And so as they get married and they start living their lives, Naomi's two sons also die. So we have three widows living in a day where there's no social security, where that is actually the worst case scenario. There is no husband, no son, no future prospect. And so we have these three widows. So Naomi and Ruth and Orpah have a look at their situation. They weigh things up. Orpah decides to go back to her family. Ruth says to Naomi, I'm not leaving your side. Naomi tries to dissuade her, tries to tell her to go back to her family. And she's like, I'm not leaving you. I'm loyal to you. 
And so Naomi and Ruth go back to Naomi's homeland. And as she's going back, she walks into the homeland and her old friends, like, you know, we just, I just celebrated my 20-year reunion. Ouch. I didn't go. All right? I celebrated watching it happen on social media. I'm an introvert at heart, everybody. 20-year reunion is the last place I'm going to be. Maybe 30-year reunion, I promised everyone. Maybe. Anyway. But she's walking into the homeland and she's reunited with all of her neighborhood friends, all her childhood friends. She's reunited with friends. And she comes in and she says to them, they're like, Naomi, Naomi. And she goes, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And so we read in the book of Ruth that she wants them to start calling her Mara. The name uh, Naomi means pleasant and joyful. She says, don't call me pleasant and joyful, call me Mara, which means bitter. She said, I went out full and I've come back empty. Don't call me pleasant and joyful. Look at my circumstance. It's bitter. Call me bitter. That suits me much better. But what we see through the book of Ruth is that Naomi's friends never once called her Mara. They never once called her by her circumstance, by her emotion, by her pain. In fact, at the end of the story, because God's awesome, and this is what he does, is he restores both Naomi and Ruth. Ruth marries an amazing godly man and has a son. And so Naomi is actually restored beyond her wildest dreams, beyond all odds, breaks, you know, every rule, and God is just that good. But I want to read it to you at the end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 14, it says... Then the women, the friends, they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than seven sons, has borne him. Also the neighborhood women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed, And he's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, who we know is the great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. But what I want to draw out, if you're going to be a kingdom-minded friend, don't ever stroke your friend's pain. Don't sit wallowing with them in their dysfunction and their hurt. A good friend weeps with a friend, but he doesn't stay there and doesn't agree with the negative confession that sometimes we hear our friends make in the midst of pain. A good friend says, yeah, this really sucks right now, but this isn't who you are. Your name is not Mara. Your name is not your pain. Your name is not what you're going through right now. Who you are is A, B, C, and D. Let me just remind you of what you're destined to be, who God says you are. A good friend prophesies over their friend. To be a kingdom-minded friend, we don't highlight the temporary pain. We're called to do much more than just describe a situation. It takes no faith, no intellect to describe what's going on in front of you. It takes a lot of faith to prophesy, to speak the goodness of God, to pull your friend above their reality, 
and into the realm of the promise of God. That is a kingdom-minded friend. To be a kingdom-minded friend, make sure you're always calling the gold out of your friends. Make sure you're always, you know, I want to make sure that anyone who hangs around me walks away believing they're better than what they thought they were when they first came to me. I want to be the sort of person who calls potential out of people. I want to be the sort of person who gives people a platform and a profile. I want to give the sort of, the, be the sort of friend that says, I see more in you than maybe you see in yourself right now. Hang around me long enough and you'll start to believe it too. I want to be that sort of friend. Because that's what God did for us, isn't it? God looks at us and he says, you're more. I see more in you than what you see. The second thing. The second thing is that a kingdom-minded friend celebrates their friends. They celebrate their friends. In the uh, book of Luke, I love the book of Luke, in the first chapter, he's recounting young pregnant Mary. She's just been told that she's going to bear the Messiah of the world. I don't know if you've ever thought this through, but the Holy Spirit turns up, the angel turns up and says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, right? Big news, okay? Big news. So she actually, in the first trimester, goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. And as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, it says that her own baby, because she was pregnant, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth starts celebrating Mary. Now you have to understand, both of these women are carrying a miracle. Elizabeth was beyond the age of childbearing and miraculously was also visited by divinity and granted a child. And so she's further along with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. We remember that guy, right? John the Baptist. And so both of these women, and so they're they're together and Elizabeth resonates with the miracle on the inside of Mary. And it's just this amazing amazing recount here in Luke 1, uh, verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and was greeted by Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For indeed, as soon as your voice, the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. You know, good friends resonate with each other. Good friends celebrate what God is doing in each other. In each other. And I'm talking about authentic genuine celebration. Authentic, genuine celebration. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Count others as more significant than yourself. This is completely countercultural. This is completely opposed to all the forces of culture bombarding us every single day. Because every single day we're told to look after ourselves. Every single day we're told to promote ourselves. Every single day we're told to promote number one, look after number one, celebrate number one. But all through scripture, 
it says, consider someone else as better than yourself. And don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but celebrate those around you. I want to tell you, jealousy is the enemy of celebration. Jealousy is the enemy of celebration. In um, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says some really startling words about, you know, the motive of our heart towards other people. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, it says, he's writing to the church, okay? Imagine me saying this to you, all right, guys? Guys, I've had enough. Sometimes I feel like saying that. No, just kidding. (laughs) Guys, you're still controlled by sinful nature. You are jealous of one another, and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're still just like the world? Good evening, have a good night. (laughs) Mic drop. We're called to be different from the world. We are called to be different from the world, to love genuinely and authentically and to celebrate the goodness of God in other people, in the people around us. Can I assure you that celebrating the goodness in someone else does not diminish the goodness in you? It just doesn't. Let's be bigger people, not jealous when someone else is being celebrated or profiled. Let's be the ones actually leading the parade. Why don't we be the ones who flick on the neon sign with someone else's name in it? Why don't we be those ones? Because scripture tells us, Jesus says in John 13, your love for one another is going to prove to the world that you're my disciples. The way you love each other is actually going to be a witness to the world around you. It's going to prove that you're Christians. So the world's hurting and looking for answers. They should be finding them in the church. They should be finding answers in the church. When you remember the wonder, like Elizabeth, the wonder of what's going on inside you, you can celebrate the wonder going on in someone else. But when you forget, like Sam said, when you forget that thankful heart, you forget all the good things God's doing in you, you find it very hard to celebrate anyone else. You look at other people and go, what you've got isn't as good as what I've got. And so then we we come away from this heart of celebration. But a kingdom comrade can genuinely celebrate the goodness occurring in someone else, puts a generous voice and a song to that celebration. I want to ask you, which of your friends can you celebrate this week? Can you commit to becoming more thankful for the miracles in your own life so that you can be keenly aware of the miracles going on in someone else's life? Be that person. The third thing a kingdom comrade does is a kingdom comrade serves their friends. It's amazing, isn't it, when we look at relationships, how countercultural they are to the world. A kingdom comrade serves. In uh, in Luke chapter 5, it's the story of Jesus one day teaching, and, um, and he gets a call. And uh, this man is saying, Jesus, can you please come to my house? My daughter is really, really unwell. His young daughter, 13, 12 or 13 years old. So Jesus is like, sure. So they start making their way to this man's house. And so on the way, sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. That's the next point. This point 
is um, the story of Jesus when he's, he's teaching in a house and, and there's this paralyzed man, this paralyzed man who has four friends. You know the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paralyzed man with four friends and they bring him to Jesus. So I want you to notice that in this story, the paralyzed man didn't even ask for help. Yeah. He didn't even ask them. He's on a mat. He's been paralyzed for a long time. And his friends hear that Jesus is at this person's house. And they're like, awesome, guys, let's, let's take him to Jesus. So they pick him up, they grab a corner each, and they make their way to the house. And they get to the house... And the house is full. They can't get in. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. They couldn't get this friend to Jesus. At that point, I'm pretty sure I would have gone, I'm really sorry, buddy. I've done my best. Right? They don't. They get him. They somehow hoist this guy onto, up onto the roof, and they dismantle the roof. Think about it. I can't get in. Oh, the next logical thing to do is pull the house apart. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't even know logistically how you get a crippled man on a mat onto a roof. Right? And whether they had tools in their back pocket to dismantle a roof. But they literally open the roof. I mean, sometimes we read scripture and just gloss over and go, oh, that's nice. Actually, think about what's happening here. They're on a roof. They're now looking through the roof. Jesus is like, hey, guys. And they lower him. I don't even know how they did that. Like, actually, directly in front of Jesus. And I want to read you what Jesus said. Luke 5. One day while Jesus was teaching, some men came carrying a paralyzed man sleeping on a mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and took off some tiles, as you do. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Okay, verse 20. Read the next three words really loudly. Seeing their faith. Whose faith? Whose faith? Seeing their faith. Jesus healed the man. Your faith can heal your friend. Your faith can heal a friend who has not even asked. Seeing their faith, Jesus healed the man. Amazing. Absolutely mind-blowing that my faith can heal my friends. I can literally take my friends into the presence of God when they can't or won't do it for themselves, and my faith can bring healing into their lives. A kingdom comrade goes the extra mile. A kingdom comrade goes above and beyond. A kingdom comrade doesn't take no for an answer on behalf of their friends. In a generation where everyone's going, you can come to me, why don't we go to them? 
Why don't we be the sorts of people who stand in the gap of faith and make up the hedge and make up the difference and refuse to take no for an answer on behalf of our friends? That we would serve them in such a way. In the early 1900s, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, sent a one-word telegram to all the soldiers of the Salvation Army. Now, the Salvation Army was clothing and feeding the poor. And back then, telegrams were charged by the letter. So he thought to himself, what is the most efficient telegram I can send to re-inspire all these men and women who are serving their generation? And he sent a telegram that said this. That was it. That was it. A one-word telegram that said, others. And later, when he was asked about that telegram, he put it this way. What is the use of preaching the gospel to men whose whole attention is concentrated on a mad, desperate struggle to keep themselves alive? What's the point in giving a gospel to someone who's only going to continue living for themselves? And I live by this mantra and I challenge people all the time, if your gospel isn't changing someone else's life, it hasn't changed yours. Others, kingdom comrades, serve. Every Jesus follower should have their hand on someone else's life, serving them that we give our lives away for others. You know, there's this big notion at the moment of self-care, and self-care is so important, but just be careful it doesn't become selfishness. The purpose of self-care is to build yourself into a healthy state so you can give yourself away. If the beginning and the end of everything you do is yourself, you've missed the point. It's all about others. It's all about others. We bring them to Jesus. And Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life down for his friends. For his friends. Let's go to them. And then the final point. Now we get to Jairus with the sick daughter. Jesus is teaching. And Jairus says, Jesus, can you come to my house? My, My daughter's unwell. Jesus agrees. On the way, they get word that she's actually died. Jesus continues. They say, don't worry him. It's over. Let him be. He's like, no, no, we're going. (laughs) And so they go to the house, and they get to the house. I want to read it with you in chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in except Peter, John, and James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop weeping. She's not dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him because they all knew that she had died. So he kicks them all out, he rebukes them. So it's amazing, isn't it, how people can go from wailing to mockery all in one breath, that's how fickle people are. He kicks them out. Verse 54, and Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. In that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. I love this story. I'm reading this story and I'm noticing who Jesus is kicking out of the room. 
I'm noticing who Jesus is keeping in the room. I notice that he kicks out the fickle wailing crowd. That is understandable. But he also kicks out nine of his 12 friends. At which point I'm going, would I be one of the nine or would I be one of the three? When Jesus has a criteria for selecting friends, what is that criteria? Because he had 12 friends that did everything with him, but he kicked nine of them out. At this point, I'm slightly nervous. I want to be one of the three. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. Can I just tell you a little bit about Peter, James, and John? Completely irrational. Hot-headed. Passionate. Completely politically incorrect. Full of faith. They were the annoying guy who always yells amen too loud. Can I just tell you, when those people are not in the room, I miss them. Peter, James, and John were the ones that got criticized by culture, scoffed at, mocked at. But when Jesus needed faith in the room, that's who he called on. Who did he kick out? The ones who had agendas, the ones who doubted, the ones who are a little bit too smart for their own good. Can I tell you, sometimes you know too much for a miracle. And I'm more than happy for you to call me the hot-headed Polish girl, because I know when you've got a problem, you're calling me. I know when you need someone in your corner, you're going to call me because you know I'm going to believe without ceasing for the miracle of God around your life. I know that you know you can come to me when you need to be reminded of the miracle working power of God, when you need to be reminded that God is bigger than any report, any circumstance. I know you're calling me. I want to be that kind of friend, someone who believes. Who believes? When, um, when we were pregnant, when, when Sam and I, when I was pregnant with our first child, Maya, 13 years ago, 13, 14 years ago, we got a negative doctor's report halfway. And they told me that, that um, she was either going to be stillborn or premature. But they told me that it wasn't going to go well. They told me that she had problems with all of her major organs, lungs, heart, kidneys. They told me it was just, it wasn't going to be good. And they offered me a termination. I'm gonna tell you 20 week terminations aren't just as of last year. And I remember obviously being first pregnancy, just sideswiped, like fear, just crippled me for days. I wept and wept and wept. I looked at that, you know that envelope, the big envelope that you get from QScan, sitting on my bedside table and it just wrecked me. 
I was riddled with shame, riddled with guilt. And when I heard those words, when I saw that report, the enemy got right in on that. And he said to me, you got away with all the wrong you did, but your children won't. And he started feeding me lies, and that's what he does. I want to tell you he's such a jerk. I want to tell you he gets in and anywhere he can, and he lies, and he torments. And I started having nightmares and all this fear. And eventually, I remember, I remember looking at Sam and saying, is it going to be okay? And he said, yes. Those three letters were all I could cling to. Yes, it's going to be okay. And I marched myself into the office of this prayer warrior in our church. Her name's Tina McChrystal, a prayer warrior, an intercessor, and a prophet. And for the first time, shared my whole testimony, all, all of it. I explained to her the shame. I explained to her the guilt. I explained to her the condemnation and, and the situation as it presented itself. She then gave me two pages of scripture about childbirth, pregnancy, and children. And she said to me, like a doctor handing a script over, a prescription, she goes, read these twice a day in first person out loud. And I did. Every day, morning and night, out loud in first person. And I didn't believe it to start with. I did not believe what I was saying. I I was still under the shroud. Eventually, though, as my ears heard the confession of my mouth. Eventually, as the well of the Word of God was being dug in my life, I started to believe it. Now, I don't know whether the doctors were wrong or whether God healed my daughter. I won't know until I'm on the other side of eternity chatting with God about it. What I do know is I called two friends into the room. I called Sam and Tina into the room. And they stood with me without a second thought for the doctor's report on the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So we need to know who to call into the room when we need a miracle, but we need to also make sure that we're the kind of person that gets called into the room. That's a kingdom comrade. And I reckon the heart of God bursts to see us all be those sorts of people who put aside the doubt, the fear, the hardship, the pain. Yes, Ruth was going through a hard time. It doesn't negate the reality of the situation, but a kingdom comrade goes beyond that, above and beyond all of that, that we would be the sorts of people who live friendship according to the standard of God. And what I love about all these ones, all four of these examples, is that they all brought Jesus into the center of the situation. They all brought Jesus into the center of the situation. Naomi's friends prophesied God's faithful character over her. Elizabeth celebrated the goodness of God in Mary's life. The four friends literally carried their friends into the presence of Jesus. And Peter, James, and John were unreserved in their faith. Do you know, I reckon that as kingdom comrades, we need not just be satisfied with doing good deeds for our friends. We need to bring them to Jesus. A hot meal, a gift, a smile, an encouraging text, that's awesome. But it needs to be more than that. Your friends need Jesus. 
Your friends need the power of God in their lives. We need to be more than just doing nice things. We need to be boldly bringing Jesus into the lives of our friends. It's very quiet in here. You carry the answer. You have their answer. Why would you keep it from them? Give them Jesus. I, I recently um, was at a rally. I don't often hold pickets, but um, I was at a rally. And I heard this amazing politician from New, New South Wales, an LNP politician. Her name's Tanya Davies. And she said these words. She said, at the end of my political career, I want to know that I did more than build a nice bridge or road somewhere. Yeah. I want to know that my political career counted for shaping society. And I reckon we need to live with that sort of resolve in our everyday lives. I want to be more than just a good person. I want to bring Jesus into every conversation, into every setting, into every encounter that I have. Anything less than that to me is a waste of a day. I miss the mark. When I carry the Spirit of God, when I carry Jesus, the purpose is to share Him and give Him out to a world that is so desperately needing of him. Let us be the ones that heaven would say, your life counted for the kingdom of God. Amen. Let us be those sorts of people, a comrade who prays, the go-to person when someone needs it, to call, be called into the room of faith, that the king and his kingdom would be the topic of our conversation that we would testify the reality of God into our, our, our friendships, our circumstances, our conversations. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message empowers you to unmistakably influence your world for good and for God. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We would love to see you at one of our many City Point Church services across Brisbane and the world this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We're so excited to see you there.